Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from Pulse Academia and Industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Hello. Hello and welcome to IEEE Software Boss Podcast. Could you please introduce yourself? My name is Noel Sharkey, and I'm a professor, well, an emeritus professor of robotics and artificial intelligence, and a remet, an emeritus professor of uh, public engagement at the University of Sheffield in the UK, mm-hmm. and I'm co-director of the Foundation for Responsible Robotics and chair of the International Committee for Robot Arms Control. Mm-hmm, great. So let me ask you um, about what is the first robot you built and what was the feeling at this time? The first robot I built was actually made out of um, a, a soft material. What was it made out of now? I'm trying to think what it was called. It was like, um, wasn't Lego, it was Meccano. Mm-hmm. And that was back in the 80s, er, very early 1980s. And I made the sensors myself. So I built the robot with Meccano. I used a little board that I got from MIT called the Handy Board. And I made some sensors that could, magnetic sensors. I covered my wheel with um, little strips of of aluminium and I used a magnet as a sensor to detect how many times the wheel had turned so that I could tell how far it went. And I, I just thought it was a very good thing to mm-hmm. do. I didn't have any strong feelings about it. Mm-hmm. But the first real robotics I did was again in the 80s and I bought a robot. I didn't build this one. I bought quite a good robot and I put in a very crude program that made it go down down the uh, a corridor very jerkily. But I put a neural network on there and the neural network looked over the shoulder of the uh, robot as it moved down the corridor. And then when it came back up the corridor, it was very jolty all over the place. It just went down the corridor once and up in the university. When it came up again, mm-hmm. I controlled the neural network that had been training. And it went down very smoothly, turned very smoothly and came back up. And I knew then that neural networks was the way to go with robots because it smooths all the behavior. It's an adaptive filter. Mm-hmm. Great. I was overjoyed by that. <laughs> So that's a very good point, but let me go for a little back about when you were a child, because the Mori, a Japanese uh, robotist, said that since I was a child, I never looked looking to Wix figures. They looked somewhat creepy to me. So I would like to ask you, when you're a child, have you ever thought about robot or what does resonate to you? What is what do you think about it? If you think about robotics now, homeonia, robot, or this kind of robot resemble humans in general? Well, I, when I was when I was a child, and it was a long time ago, mm. it, <clears throat> I when I was up at the age of four, I know, and three and four, I was this big science fiction fan because I used to listen to Dan Dare on the radio. Mm. So the first robots that I ever saw were in the movies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of my favourites was The Day the Earth Stood Still, which was 1951. That was made when I was three years old. Mm. That had a huge giant robot called Gort. Uh, that walked out of a spacecraft and it could uh, destroy weapons. It didn't kill the people. It just destroyed all of their weapons with just a glance. And it was a robot that was designed for world peace. And I thought it was stunning. I mean, I really wanted my own robot. I had a little robot car that one of my relatives in America sent me when I was about five. And you just said to it, go. And it went and stop and it stopped mm. and turn and it turned. You didn't have a choice of which way it turned. You just said turn and it turned. So I was fascinated by it. I I, I think I, ju- I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't think anything other than these are incredible. And I, at the time, I suppose I believed they already existed. Mm-hmm. ask you how you would define a robotics from your experience, because there are different definitions, but how you would define it? What is robotics or robot engineer? 
<laughs> I think that's a pretty impossible question. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, uh, in my classes with, with advanced students, one of the questions that always appeared in the exam, exam my exams was of the form of, um, can you define a robot? Why is it impossible? <laughs> <laughs> But it's it's not really what it is is that in robotics we don't talk about robots we talk about we qualify it always so you have um, social robots you mm -hmm. have autonomous robots you have teleoperated robots so that can be some people don't like this but that can be just a remote control device mm -hmm. controlling it but that's still a robot it's a teleoperator or remote control robot. Um, but the, and then you've got robot arms, which are used in industry. But a, the kind of robots I work with all the time were autonomous robots, biologically inspired autonomous robots. And pretty much you define that as a, as a moving object with sensors on board connected to computers that control. So the computers process the information from the sensors and send signals to the motors to control the movement of the robot. I suppose that's as simple as you can go. But I, I'm someone who's looked at definitions right all the way back to 1921. And throughout the early part of the 20th century, robots were anything with a sensor on. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when traffic lights in the United States got electric eyes that could detect the shadow of a car, they were called robots. Mm -hmm. South Africa, they're still called robots. Traffic lights are still called robots. So robots have changed what they are over the years. Mm -hmm. they, in fact, the robots, the term, when the term robot was invented by Carl Kapek in 1921, in his play, all the robots were what we would now call androids. They were, they were organic. They were made in big vats and processed that way. So they were actually thinking like humans as opposed to just having being boxes with computers in. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. So how do you see the progress of robotics since the first uh, industrial ultimate robot built by George Duval in 1954? This is the progress of either in academia or industry. It's exponential. How you see it is just it's worthwhile or how you comment about that? That was, it was quite interesting. I mean, Unimate was was quite incredible. In fact, um, oh, Joe Engelberger, who 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 started um, who started Unimate, mm -hmm. actually said, "I've got him on video saying I couldn't." He was talking about the definition of robots, and he said, "I couldn't tell you what a robot is, but I sure as hell know one when I see it." Mm -hmm. So that's the idea. And the first robot arm was supposed to be a robot only because that arm would eventually be mounted on a real robot, which it never was. So it kept that word as, as a robot, even though it was an arm. And the biggest progress, I suppose, was was moving robots. So in the late 70s, they had Stanford's shaky robot, mm -hmm. um, which so there was all this sort of AI stuff that was going on uh, in the 19 in the 1970s. But the robots were really slow, so Shaky could make plans. It could walk across, or not walk, it would wheel itself, drive across a room. It would see an obstacle, avoid that obstacle. But it took a long, long time. It would take 15 minutes mm -hmm. while it looked around the room. Then it would move one meter. Then it would take another 15 minutes. So the progress was really slow. And this mm -hmm. went on right until the 80s. Robots were, were being developed, but they were so slow. But then in, 19, in the 1980s, um, it was uh, Brooks, mm -hmm. Rod Brooks, uh, came along and changed all that. And what he did was he looked back to much earlier than Unimate. He looked back to 1948, the year I was born. And a British scientist called Gray Walter had developed autonomous robots. He wasn't even using a computer. Mm -hmm. he, the sensors pretty much connected to the uh, directly to the motors with a, va a valve or a what the Americans call a tube intermediating between those. And they could move around on their own quite quickly and avoid obstacles. So Brooks went back to that and developed something called a subsumption archite architecture and invented behavioral robots where there's a lot less computer processing in the sense of AI and more movement directly from the sensors. And that changed robotics completely. Now robots could move around quite quickly. And soon we got the Roomba vacuum cleaner, again from Rodney Brooks, 
and that changed robotics completely. Now, now robotics were viable. And my first robot, for instance, was of that form. And so I used neural network learning because that was like the same kind of thing. That was having a neural network process between the sensors and the computers. And so robots get better and better. But nowadays, uh, there's great advancements. I mean, there's so much change. When you look at, for instance, tractors, mm -hmm. agricultural robotics, doing harvesting of crops, you know, very efficiently. We've got robot planters. We've got robot pickers, but they're very, very slow. They're not going to replace humans yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's because humans' hands are so delicate we can just pick a strawberry without thinking about it and not crush it, whereas a robot has to pick it very slowly. So, so what we're saying now is the usual thing in robots. You don't worry about designing the robot. What you do is you build the robot, then you design the environment to fit the robot. Uh -huh. And that works very well. So now for, for harvesting strawberries, they've developed um, strawberries so that they hang, they hang downwards very clearly so a robot comes along and snips the top of the strawberry mm -hmm. snips the stalk and it falls into a basket so they can't pick them but they can snip them so that's redesigning the environment and that happens a lot but we're seeing so much good stuff we're seeing little autonomous submarines going under the ice cap for instance uh, to observe its melting robots in the bottom of the ocean observing the chemical content of the oceans mm -hmm. In, in massive lakes in the United States, they have shoals of robot fish doing the same monitoring water quality. So that's the that's the real good applications, using them for humanitarian purposes like going out, finding populations that are in disaster areas and feeding them, taking food, flying in all sorts of medical supplies, mm -hmm. robots helping the environment, and robots being very good and efficient at... Um, at all sorts of agricultural stuff. But we're also seeing a lot of worrying developments, and I guess we'll get onto those a little later as we mm -hmm. move through the podcast. Yeah, but I would like to ask at this point about like agricultural robots. Do you think in the long run it could affect on social inequality for people who are in, like, in developing countries who are highly depending on agriculture? So do you think this, this we didn't consider in robotic design if you highlighted the environment is changing or have to readapt environment. But what about a human who is still highly depending on this craft like or using agriculture as a, as a job? So do you think this is a threat for people one day could be? Yes, there is. There's always that danger. Mm -hmm. And that's a problem. And there's always been that danger. I mean, people used to just use little <laughs> sticks or stones to, mm -hmm. to do agriculture. So it can make it a lot more efficient. And this is the kind of thing where we need to be on our toes and have good regulations. Because I'm, I'm very concerned about massive companies just coming along, moving into Africa and taking over agriculture completely. Mm -hmm. So those things are very worrying. And there's always a trade-off here because you know that we're on a, a, a climate change crisis. And I really believe this strongly as a scientist. You know, I, I see it as a very, very serious issue for us. And we're going to have to do something about finding water and food production. And I think robots, if handled properly, this could be the best way. I mean, we should have circumstances. Sometimes companies will will give away robots to to groups of underprivileged people in in nations, you mm -hmm. know, third nations like laptops or or iPads that can really help them. And we've seen what what mobile phones have done in Africa. It's quite incredible. They never had the infrastructure for proper phone lines. Mm -hmm suddenly everybody's got phones and communications better. So we need to make sure this is one of the things that, that this is part of my work is is nagging governments and, and the UN, etc., about the inequalities of, of the technology. So we don't want to throw away good technology just because we're concerned about the uh, inequalities. We need to make sure that there is equality. We need to make sure that this equipment could be put in the hands of the small farmer to help them mm -hmm. and be really helpful. But we, we haven't got the luxury of just letting people farm on their own if we've got techniques that can make it you know, a lot more efficient so that more people are fed. The big thing is to feed the planet. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, so that, you know, sometimes sacrifices have to be made for the, for the very many. And we're talking about very many. And, you know, things are going to get worse as the planet gets hotter. We're going to need our technology more and more. And finding water and making it clean, if we could do that with robotics, then uh-huh. that would be absolutely wonderful. Yeah. So let me ask you, what are the most misconceptions about robotics and artificial intelligence? So far, you have noticed misconceptions. Well, there's so many misconceptions. I suppose the biggest one is the, is the idea of uh, this um, singularity or general intelligence mm-hmm. or a what do they call it? Um, AGI, which is artificial intelligence. Yeah. Oh, well, artificial general intelligence. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really misleading. And the idea of Terminator robots and and people like Elon Musk talking about the robot uprising and robots rising up to kill us. I mean, the only robots that have killed people really are, are robots that he's developed called autonomous cars. So mm-hmm. I don't really, I don't really believe any of that. And uh, you know, I'm a scientist, so. You know, I can't really speak about the distant future. I mm-hmm. don't know what's going to happen then. But I don't know why you would talk about things with absolutely zero evidence. Mm-hmm. There's no evidence whatsoever that any robot or AI system will suddenly get intention or a mind of its own and be able to to do something terrible. So that creates a great misconception. And people spread that misconception by talking about things like, how advanced artificial intelligence is becoming it's you know we're moving towards super intelligence because we can beat all nowadays and i'm very proud of the engineering achievements we can beat the best players at go in the world we can beat the best chess players mm-hmm. without exception there's no possibility of any player winning those games against things like alpha go or alpha zero and even starcraft 2 now has been conquered by a machine but this doesn't show any kind of superintelligence or any move even remotely in the direction of superintelligence because you have to remember that these are closed games. They're not out there in the real world. Mm-hmm. They've got fixed rule sets. So the machine can be trained or, or even usually they're symbolically given the rule set to start with and then they learn the game on top of that and they have them learning you know you give them 30 million moves to begin with and they they work on those and learn them you know train until they've learned those and then you give them reinforcement learning and it plays themselves for millions and millions of more games you know, AlphaGo, for instance, would be trained with something like 17,000 very high-powered computers mm-hmm. playing itself for a month. And then when it plays the game, is could you... I mean, playing the game is kind of metaphorical because it doesn't... The machine doesn't know what a game is, mm-hmm. doesn't know it's playing a game. You could switch it off halfway through. It wouldn't be frustrated. It wouldn't have any feeling about it whatsoever. All it's done, all that happens is it's given a pattern on a board. It's given a visual pattern. And then it triggers a move given that pattern. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Simple as that. And it doesn't know why. It doesn't know it was a game. It doesn't have any sense about it. It doesn't jump up and give you a high five when it wins the game. Mm. It could take you a cup of tea afterwards. And, you know, if you knew someone like that, you certainly wouldn't say they were moving towards superintelligence. The best you could call them was an idiot savant. Mm, yeah. So I don't, I don't think that, I think that this is, it's both, Uh, A lot of hype, and I think it's also dangerous talk, because when you mislead the public about the nature of something like AI, it misleads their purchasing behavior, it misleads the way they think about it, and then they might take on objects believing manufacturers that they're much smarter than they are. And this is where it becomes really dangerous, I think. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting point. So let me ask you, who is responsible for this kind of hype? I mean, who is driving this kind of hype? And what could be the benefit besiding this hype for just what we see? And unfortunately, I see some people just flow blindly what have been said. So what what do you think what could be solution to just correct the vision about the, the current technology we have? It's very difficult. I had a job from 2004 until, it was it 2004 until 2010 mm-hmm. for our main research council, the people who fund artificial intelligence, robotics, and in fact, gen- engineering and physics in the UK called the EPSRC. And they funded me uh, f- fully 
for those years uh, as a senior media fellow. And my job was to talk to the general public, engage with the general public, and spend a lot of time on the media trying to pour cold water on these misconceptions of artificial intelligence. And that was back in 2004, as I say. And so I was, I would do courses for journalists, you know, really working hard at it. Mm. But I realized then there was no holding it back. I mean, it comes from so many sources, it's impossible. And a lot of people blame journalists, and I do not blame journalists. Mm -hmm. Journalists are looking for stories, and they're looking for stories that their readers are interested in. Now, if you give, and, and academics will quite often phrase a story in a way that can fit into a science fiction trope. Now, when you give a journalist a science fiction trope, that gives them a very easy way, a very yeah. easy narrative to plug into that will serve the public well because they can get it out there and, and read it. And many more journalists now, are, the journalists are now becoming very much more responsible about this than they used to be. But that was that was a lot of the time by academics who are looking for publicity because, and academics will say, well, that was the press. Hmm. And what I've been doing, what I'd started doing back then was to go to the university website and get the press release. And mm -hmm. you'd find it was a very different story than the academic was was telling you. The university press release would be what the what the newspapers were reporting as hype, mm. because what the journalists were not. I mean, they can't blame the journalists; they're not scientists. And so, people get you get refunded for research, three to five years funding, and people actually imagine. You know, to do that, I know I've been an academic. I've got lots of, you know, had lots of funding myself. And you get really ambitious and you have to believe yourself. You're not going to get that funding if you don't believe your ambition. And you've got to be ambitious or you're not going to get the funding. It's as simple as that. So you come to believe that yourself. And then when you write up the press release, you want journalists to be interested because when journalists are interested, mm -hmm. You get more funding. I mean, it's yeah. great to say, oh, look, at you know, and it's out there everywhere. And so it becomes a kind of co-conspiracy between the academic and the uh, and the journalist. But nowadays, it's, it's got much worse. I think a lot of academics are more responsible. And two kinds of academics, the kinds who were just exploiting the publicity and the other kinds who really strongly believed in what they were writing. I mean, there are academics who strongly believe right back in the 1950s that they were mm. developing super intelligence. It was going to be at least as good as humans within the next 10 years. It's always been within the next 10 years and that's gone on all the way through. And they really believe it and you can't stop that. But now what you've got is industrial involvement. Mm. AI has become industrialized and commercialized on a massive scale. And the vast majority of that, the very vast majority has nothing to do with what AI is about. People mm. using a stats package now will call it AI. I've talked to to you know to startups mm -hmm. who've been forced by investors that they're a startup that works in data mm -hmm. and data science. They've been forced by investors to say they're an AI company and they're not. Mm. And so it's a massive commercialization. But then you've got the billionaires. You've got people like Elon Musk. Yeah. And he talks about, you know, AI being terrible, how awful it is. And you think, well, why is he saying this? Mm -hmm. And then you find out he opens a company, starts a company called OpenAI that's going to make safe AI for mm -hmm. a profit. So they're going to be safe to all of us. So a lot of this is profiteering as well. I mean, it's, it's multiple effects. And a lot of it is just fun. Well, I mean, I love science fiction movies. I like to go and see The Terminator and those movies. Yeah. I think they're really good fun. But, you know, I also used to like fairy tales. And I know they're fairy tales. And I think that the science fiction robots are fairy tales as well. But I have to say that throughout my career, there's much in science fiction that has inspired me. And I think most people working in AI would tell you the same. That's very interesting. Uh, actually, I had many, many points. It started from academia, and that's, I think, the issue that about the hype or how academicians working or saying the word. I don't yeah. know what you think, but because you have really a rich experience in academia, so I don't know what could be regulation when you have published something or hype or saying this working, and you find out that most of research is not, of course, not reproducible. Sometimes you find this issue 
But I don't know this kind of a struggle, and I think it's become a, a day after day we we have this problem, and and there is yes. no striders to tackle this problem. So. Well, well, as I say, though, journalists are becoming more responsible. Mm-hmm. I mean, back in the, I, I've been, I've been pretty skeptical about all this stuff right back since the eighties. I mean, I was sold okay. on it to begin with in the seventies completely. Mm-hmm. Uh, then, having worked in AI, I went to Yale and worked in the AI labs and saw the best. Uh, you know, in the very early eighties, eighty one, eighty two was I think. Um, I saw all the best AI that there was in the world at that time, and I was very under. I was really shocked. Actually, I was. Quite quite depressed because it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. It was much, mm-hmm. much worse where these natural, incredible natural language programs, inference mechanisms, and you put a comma in the wrong place and the whole thing crashes, you know, mm-hmm. it was not what, what it, what it looked to be. But, but in those days, so I was quite, I was quite skeptical in the, in the mid eighties, but in those days, journalists would bring me to ask me about AI. And they would always, I would tell them what I thought about, you know, well, it's not all it's made out to be. And they would say, thank you very much and hang up on me. They weren't interested at all in hearing the negative answer. Oh. But now I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm interviewed probably, there's, there's periods when I'm interviewed every day and maybe two or three times a day. People want, journalists now want call me because they want an alternative view. Mm. They want to hear somebody who is has got a good scientific background and they will send me a paper or a press release and say, hey, Noel, is this, is this right? I mean, what do you think? Is this bullshit or what? And I will, I will say if I think it's good, but I will, I will point out that sometimes this is really good work and it was unnecessary for them to say this. Hmm. to stay following so so that's a very good move by the media to do that and and we need to be aware of this and a lot of ai people like myself as well are very concerned because twice in the past yeah there's been what we call an ai winter and the first one came about in the 1970s after the light hill report because ai the early ai our founding fathers who were very ambitious talked it up and talked it up and talked it up and then eventually people said wait a minute Mm. we're not seeing this what you said would happen within 10 years has not happened and even remotely happened so all funding was stopped in the united states and the uk Mm. and that had the same in the 1980s with expert systems they were hyped to high heaven about they were going to be the great experts that were going to help us all and then there was a complete kill of the funding and I think it looks to me like we're reaching a really high height circle at the minute that might result in the same. And oh. we've got to avoid that. I don't want to see that because it could be so beneficial to us that we mustn't lose it. Mm-hmm. And this is a very scary point because still we, this funding is highly bent on hype if, you, if we can conclude this. But do you think this kind of solution you think that to regulate how the funding is provided to people and not hyping, so do you think there's, there's a solution, just if we can summarize one solution, you think? Oh. No, I don't. Mm. I don't think there's one solution. And I don't want to see regulation about hype. I mean, how would you do that? Because mm-hmm. sometimes it's just a story. But, but funders can do things, though. I mean, funders, for instance, in the UK now will ask if, there's a, if there are ethicists on the, on the board. Mm-hmm advisors on the funding so yeah. they do that so they could they could stipulate that they must um keep reality about mm. the funding so that they have to pass the the press release for instance back to their funders to to uh, give them a chance to look at it before they release it and um <clears throat> they must be very sensible in their in their, uh, the way they talk about the funding. Certainly when I got my senior media fellowship from the funders, um, I had to go to London and I had a, an, a very, very tough interview from a lord who had been on television quite a lot. Uh, I think it was the Times technology editor and the head of the Research Council. Those three people interrogated me for an hour Mm. to find out if there was any hype in my body whatsoever. (laughs) I I mean, the questions were so... I I never had an interview like it. I came away completely exhausted, feeling I had no chance of getting an interview because they asked me questions about physics and things that I Mm. didn't know anything about. And I kept saying I'd have to tell the media I couldn't talk to them because I don't know anything about that mm-hmm. but that was the answer they wanted <laughs> so don't talk about things you don't know anything yeah. about and when you do talk about it 
talk about it in scientific way. Hmm. And look, let me tell you one of the things that could help a lot in the solution if we started using, if we could develop a proper scientific language for robotics. Yeah. And I've been saying this now for 25 years or more. We don't have one. And we use metaphors in our lab. I mean, people in the lab will say, oh, he's very good today or he's, you know, that kind of thing. And it's just casual chat. But that comes out into other talk. People talking about their robot being the mother of these babies when they're doing genetic algorithms mm. and they do it in the lab and then it gets into the papers and then everybody's completely misled. So it's, so it, you know, scientists being more responsible and staying more responsible. I'm sorry we can't do anything about billionaires, but if scientists are responsible, people will learn that they're just talking out of their bottoms, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let me ask you, how do lay people think about robotics and AI, which is truly now I think you struggle. I mean, you all the time mentioned this decision made by uh, AI and shouldn't be delegated significant uh, decision making. So I don't know how lay people think about this uh, technology around them. And do you think it is about uh, like in education, we have to like outreach them or because not everyone involved in tech, but What do you think about that? How, how do you perceive it? I, well, I, I think a lot about this, actually, because it's, it's one of the worst things about AI yeah. is people are rolling this out. Um, there, that's a case where we need really strong international regulation. Okay. Not, not, it can't be local regulation. Though I would, I'm pushing in the UK for regulation uh, very hard. I'm pushing very hard for this. Um, but let, let me just say what, what it is so that our, our listeners know. Uh, we're talking here about algorithms, computer programs that are perhaps trained on data or perhaps just coded. And these algorithms are given decision power. So they will decide on, on certain things. It might be something like, Um, which applicants uh, for a job mm -hmm. are shortlisted. That can be done by machine. Uh, it might decide on who gets wel welfare payments. There are algorithms in the United States uh, making decisions about who should get priority for health care, for mm -hmm. instance. Uh, there are algorithms being used by the police um, to decide on who should get bail. Uh, that's who should mm -hmm. be released. Uh, from prison while they're waiting trial and who shouldn't be. And, in, and there's a lot more than that. And even face recognition, in all these cases, um, these things have been tested by the company thoroughly and they're being sold to the police or the authorities or to companies. And it turns out with, with organizations like NGOs, like I work for, but organizations are the ones who get these equipment and they, they test it and they show that it's biased. Or they get a hold. They use freedom of information requests to the to the company or to the government, and they get the data and they go through the data and find out that it's totally unequal. So mm. people of of darker shades of skin, women uh, and women of darker shades of skin are the biggest victims, in fact, you know, mm. because that's where where it seems to go wrong, and and the poor and the vulnerable, and it's showing time and time again. And at the moment, it's welfare payments. There's been a new report from the Special Rapporteur of the UN, Philip Alston, showing a decision algorithms throughout the world are depriving people of wealth welfare and even in the uk it's making some people homeless in india people have died and how can we go on with this so this is i'm just outlining what what the problem is so the thing is and and let me give you the solution mm -hmm. before i even start for me the solution at the moment mm -hmm. is that Uh, any decision that's going to significantly affect people's lives should be made by a human, mm -hmm. uh, not delegated to a machine. And when I say made by a human, that's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. Because you could set it up so that it looks as if it's been made by a human. But we have these whole range of automation biases that we, we're all subject to. So if a machine gets it right so many times, you just start believing the machine. And you're just sitting there and the machine says, this person should get uh, no bail. And you just go, okay. And that, that's it. So you just accept what the machine says. Now, I don't want doctors just accepting when a machine says, I think he's got this disease Um, it seems that he's got this disease. I want a proper proper medical review. Mm -hmm. That's so useful medicine to have a machine outline a list of possible you know, 
possible syndromes or diseases that I don't know mm -hmm. and the doctor might not have experienced. But I want the doctor to make that decision. I want the doctor to make the decision to switch off my life support system in, in conjunction with my family and not let a machine make that decision, even though they say the statistical methods will do it better. They still need to be reviewed by a human and not just sitting there tapping the machine. So you, I want to see deliberative decision making. Now, why is that? Now, for years now, for some years now, Google, Microsoft, yeah. those big companies all admit quite clearly that machines are biased, especially when you have machine learning. It can happen without machine learning, but especially with machine learning. And they come into the to part our parliament and I'm there and they say things like, oh, yeah, we've been working very hard for years now for a solution to this. We'll, I'm sure we'll find a solution. And I just say the same thing over and over again. Well, you're great companies and I'm sure you may well find a solution at some point. But until you do, could we stop using these? Because while we're sitting here talking, injustices are being perpetuated throughout the mm -hmm. globe. So that has got to be stopped. There's no excuse for that whatsoever. Now, if we look at the way machine learning works, it's just sunk from the beginning. We have, we have, for instance, the fact that you've got maybe billions of lines of code. Yeah. And you can't examine all those lines of code. And our, our, our gender bias, for instance, our, our racial bias, yeah. our societies have evolved so much. I mean, I've been around all the time. I remember how women were treated in 1950s. It mm -hmm. was like a joke nowadays how people of color were treated back then. Racism was rampant. And you could you could just say racial things out loud. And that's all locked in our internet. So when you collect all this data, it's all in there. And so you can't even check it because there's so many lines of code, you can't use any normal computer science database methods. Mm -hmm. So you've got all that. And then the majority of stuff that's actually, the majority, vast majority, of these machines are what you call supervised learning. Mm -hmm. Now that means they all the data has to be tagged. Now who, who tags that? Well, that gets sent to third world countries. That gets sent to sort of almost sweatshops in India called data farms where thousands of people sit there day after day tagging data. They have to make that decision as to how to tag the data. If it's the difference between a dog and a cat, well, that's pretty obvious. Mm -hmm. But other things are not so obvious. And uh, a friend of mine who's in one of my organizations, I crack, uh, worked for Clarify, and they sent their data off to, um, to the, where was it to? It was to, it was to India to be classified. And they were looking to classify videos as having explicit content or not. So really about mm -hmm. ex explicit sexual content yeah. or not. And so that they could put a, a rating on it so that adults knew, you know, you don't want to show this to your children. Mm -hmm. What happened was they found that any mention of the word gay or homosexual or lesbian or any of those things yeah. made by fully clothed adults in a normal drama was considered by the taggers as explicit. Mm-hmm. So there's bias differences in yeah. culture as well. And then you've got what I said earlier about robots using it as an adaptive filter. It filters out the outliers or what we might call the minorities. So it will filter them out. So, you know, it's it's just really difficult. And the best thing it could be used for, it could still be used to help. It mm -hmm. can still be used to assist, show the results to a human and have a panel of humans make that decision. And that's where we need, I think, very strong regulation. Mm -hmm. If we are going to have it make decisions at the very most, at the very least, we need large scale pharmaceutical testing. Mm -hmm. uh, and you could say that would rule out the the little startups and i said that at a big industry conference recently i'm concerned about how this can rule out startups and they said not really because there are many startups still working in the pharmaceutical industry they just don't do the testing mm -hmm. that's a very tricky point about the data whether it's it's up to understanding each region here what is meaning that's uh, as you highlight an example but do you think that we can have a fair machine learning or just so you can we can depend on making a decision because sometimes human also biased if we just make a decision by human they may be also biased but do you think this is could yeah. happen we have a fair 
machine learning or AI and, and taking account its differences between different cultures. Do you think this is possible? I really hope so. Okay. I really hope so, but I can't see it happening anytime soon, but I really hope so. And the explainability is becoming big as well. So, so at the moment, you can't go into a neural network and see why, why it did what it's done. And if you have very small scale ones, you can do that a bit. But these massive things, you can never do that. So I really hope that you can get that. I mean, it, it might, it should be possible at some point, but testing is still the absolutely essential. So large yeah. scale testing, and then you have certification or certificate to say that you've used it. Because at the moment, look, anybody can download the machine learning tools off the internet. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to put data into them and run yeah. them. And I see these things all the time. And, and what, you, what you do need is a very strong marketing group, mm -hmm. great PR people. And then there's no regulation to stop you selling that to anybody. And I keep telling our police force to stop buying snake oil, oil from bad vendors. Have you mm. made sure that this is tested? And they say, yes, the, the manufacturers assure us that it's been tested thoroughly. But that's not, that's like asking a used car salesman if they've tested the car thoroughly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a kind of craziness that we've really got to, to look at. And, and the biggest concern for me at the minute is our public services using them. That's my big concern at the minute because the others we can get at. But we've got to have that that testing always and certification because you know they they produce these manuals that I've read that have nothing to do with the application they produced and it's quite a disgrace. Mm, yeah. So let me ask you, what do you think about robotics? Like, uh, like in instance, in China they have like a robotic anchor woman. I don't know what you think about the idea of like, I don't know why they want to make something resemble human being. Do you think it's mind blowing or just scary? I, what do you think about this kind of robotics that resemble human? Well, it, it's, it varies a lot depending on what it is. You know, it can be a deception that's very, very bad for the for yeah. the whole field or bad for people. But it also can be a lot of fun and entertainment. I mean, why they make a robot anchor is because it will catch a lot of people. I mean, you're going to all over the world, people are going to want to see that, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Even if they're just going to laugh at how inadequate it was, mm -hmm. but they're going to want to see it. I mean, the thing about some some... Um, I mean, I've worked in the media a lot and there's really good presenters who question you and they really get caught up in the questioning. And there are other people, presenters on TV, who are reading an auto cue all the time. Mm. So they're just looking. I mean, why they, they're just looking straight ahead, but they've got, you know, I can see the auto cue that they're looking at <laughs> with them and they're talking away to me fluently. And they've got a producer in their ear saying, ask him this or ask him that or, yeah. you know, let's do, you know, I've, I've had one of the, I've done presenting myself and I had one of those things in my ear. So I know, I know what that's like. So, so sometimes a robot would do it just as well as a human. And it's a, it's a novelty and it's quite a bit of fun, but it can also be a bit risky. And, and you know, in, in Japan, they love their robots in a way that the rest of us don't. And so they make those actoid robots, mm -hmm. silicon ones. And people like Ishiguru, who've made a robot that looks exactly like him. And it really does. Um, yeah. And he, when he I, I essentially, I don't think of Ishiguru as a scientist. And he would argue with me about this in mm -hmm. an amused way, because I think of him as an artist. And he has an artistic background. Yeah. Uh, psychology background and you know he's he's obsessed with this he's got to the point now with his robot because he's aging and the robot isn't so he is actually i would if i was him i'd change my robot but what he's doing is he's actually having plastic surgery now so that he looks oh. like his robot oh that's so scary <laughs> i know it is and um, i've had photographs taken with him and he says hold on hold on a minute he gets his glasses on and he poses like a robot so he mm. looks like the robot in photographs because he's trying to make this thing about robots looking like humans now i think his is mainly an artistic conception but in japan it's a lot like that they just like the idea of robots Mm -hmm. You know, we, we built the first robot built, we built a big metal mm -hmm. robot and they built a laughing Buddha. They have a very different relationship there. Mm -hmm. Not very functional robots, unfortunately, but they're, but they're, you know, I've looked at the whole history of show robots. Show robots were really big at one time. You take them around and you show them and people love them. And you no, know, you don't, you try not to mislead, but they can inspire children mm -hmm. into technology. 
you know, that's that's one of the things about them. So sure, robots can do that. But then you get robots like the Sophia robot, yeah, uh, Hanson Robotics. And um, I mean, I quite like David Hanson, and I really yeah. like some of his machines. I really like his Philip K. Dick one, etc. And I argue, I've argued with him quite a lot about this, about yeah. the idea, and written articles about it as well, to be honest, um, the idea that Sophia is a show robot, and they should admit that it's a show robot rather than keep pretending that it's not. But I think that their chief um, executive, their t- chief technology officer, is so strongly believing in AI. When he really gets challenged, though, he admits that Sophia is not nearly alive, is not a very intelligent creature, but that he believes that it will be one day. But they don't say that. So they're giving the idea that artificial intelligence is a lot further ahead than it is. Yeah. And why I started getting quite cross about it yeah. was because uh, when they started taking it to the UN, Mm-hmm. And then you've got standing before the UN talking uh, in a scripted, completely scripted way. And I even believe that, though they won't admit this, I believe that it's remote control. I know some people inside the company, yeah. I believe that it's remote controlled a lot of the time. Yeah. And then it's given Saudi citizenship, which was outrageous. Yeah. And, you know, because women in, women in Saudi had such bad, exactly. um, yeah. you know, bad rights. And then you've got a female gender robot with far more rights um and and it just seemed absolutely preposterous and then it appears that the the, the last straw was that appeared at the munich defense conference mm-hmm. at a point when when manufacturers are trying to sell new robot weapons and and hyping them up and making them look far more advanced than they are now you've got sophia going up there and hansen saying oh it can think like a human and and you've got all the defense chiefs of the world sitting there at this conference watching this and then I get really angry that's a very very bad thing but you know an anchor appearing on television is a bit of novelty you know what can you say but it's important that my wife and I have just finished a paper this morning (laughs) on deception and robots and when it's wrong and when it's right so that was that's looking at these issues. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I would like to ask you what do you think about ethics like and like sexual robotics because some companies just relate to try to replicate the robots that can freeze and react. I'm just wondering about in the long run about humanity. What do you think about this kind of robotic? Is it ethical thing to have it in general perspective or something could really endanger our offspring in, in one day? Well, it's, it's very difficult to know exactly what will happen with that. I mean, I, I wrote a report uh, with the Foundation for Responsible Robotics two years ago, a major report, but it was a consultation report I decided to go in the end. So I said what other people said. Mm-hmm. And I, interviewed, I even interviewed sex workers. I interviewed, you know, to what would they want from a client? How feasible do you think this is? So I, talk, I talked to people who were into sadomasochism, a woman who was... Uh, who wrote for the porn industry yeah. uh, to, you know, all sorts of people. I talked to a lot of philosophers and, you know, it was quite interesting, the police. Um, and I talked about, you know, lots of different things. And it seems that, you know, one thing about these robots as they stand now, they are pornographic representations mm-hmm. of women. Mm-hmm. Clearly, they objectify women very strongly and that can't be a good thing. But, you know, I'm not sure that, there's so much porn out there on the internet. I'm not sure how much these robots will objectify it further. Really, mm-hmm. I, I don't know. In other words, mm-hmm. I don't like it myself. I have five daughters. I don't like these things. Yeah. But I'm not going to. I'm not a moral, you know, agent to tell people. I don't. I'm not a, the moral authorities that tell people what to do. Yeah. Um, what people do in the privacy of their own home is, is their business. If if a man or a couple or whatever want to have you know, yeah. some sort of sex toys like a robot because essentially it's just a sex toy but it's a sex toy with a body Mm. and that objectify women now there's been so many variety of opinions and there's some people say well you know you could have your wife and then you could you know take out your darkest fantasies with your robot and beat it up and do things to it then there are others who are kantians who say that more to do that to an object that represents a human would you morally and make you morally worse person so there's all these differences of opinions to contend with um but then again what happens my biggest concern when i first looked at it or one of my biggest concerns was 
what happens if this is the first experience that a young person has with sex? Mm-hmm. What will that do to them? What will they think sex is about? How will they ever understand a proper, meaningful, loving relationship? Yeah. Which where, where sex is part of that relationship and reproducing to have children rather than some just lusty thing you can just do off whenever you, whenever you, whatever, you know, women are just there just to be treated, grabbed and seized and had sex with whenever you fancy as a sort of sex aid. And it could inspire that kind of opinion. But, you know, it's a bit like the stuff that we used to always get with television. Would it be bad to show explicit yeah. content in television? It's bad to show violence in television. And there was never any satisfactory resolution to that. The experiments were never done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Don't really know. And they talk about it for lonely people. And yeah. some of the studies show that people could even feel lonelier. Yes. I mean, the surveys show that about approximately, when you look at the surveys overall, about 5% to 7% of women are interested in these and about twice as many men. Mm-hmm. So it's not vast quantities of people. And often the surveys, though, say if a robot was exactly like a human and behaved and talked exactly like a human, would you have sex with it? Mm-hmm. So it's not what robots are like. Yeah, they're really awful. I've I've seen the best ones, and they're not. They're terrible, really. Some yeah. are really ugly, and and they're not going to do too much. But I can see them. I could see them being more used in um, because you have these doll brothels now, which is never. I never understood that, but. Yeah. Um, but as I say, I used to be a psychiatric nurse and I've also worked in the sex clinic. So I understand it in a sense that I know the great range of perversity of humans. Um, and there are people who, so these doll brothels where people go and have sex with dolls mm-hmm. and they started in South Korea because prostitute, prostitution was yeah. completely illegalized. Hardly. Illegal, yeah. But then it took off in Japan and people preferred them to actual prostitutes because mm-hmm. they were cleaner, they thought. And, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and people people fell in love with them. Mm-hmm. And now I've got stories of, I've got at least 10 to 12 examples of men who fell in love with a sex doll. And one Japanese man actually left his his wife to go with it, not a robot, with a sex doll that he takes around in a wheelchair. He gets it up in the morning, combs its hair, and he's madly in love mm-hmm. with it. And so people will, there's a great range of people. Yeah. Is that where sex robots is going to go? Is yeah. it going to be? paraphilia a paraphilia doesn't necessarily mean it's it means it's an odd way of having sex against the norm it doesn't mean that it's necessarily abnormal or sick yeah so it could be a paraphilia in that it's something a bit odd or the norms could change to assimilate them and then they'd be part of our everyday lives and and uh, you know we can't tell in advance which that would be but the biggest thing for me and it's a very dark thing and i don't want to linger on it because it really annoys me uh, is the use of development of um, childlike sex dolls for mm-hmm. paedophiles. And that really does bother me. And I yeah. think we really need to ban that unless we can find that it would work for therapy. And I was, I worked with Senator Dan Donovan's team in the US and we managed to get the Creeper Act through the House of uh, Representatives in the US disallowing the the. Uh, selling or importing of of these kinds of sex dolls and i'm working at our with our parliament on this but unfortunately brexit's getting in the way of that at the moment but we've got to that's a type i really want to stop the other type i'm just not sure about i can't really put my hand to my heart and say Mm -hmm. i'm a moral authority but i think that it needs to be discussed yeah and thought about yeah well so I think one of also important issue I think is the mental health and um, I don't know what you think about AI strides in tackling the loneliness of many people whether elderly or young people what do you think about this uh, what can we do with AI to tackle the loneliness Well I think that we'd be better off using AI as tools mm-hmm. to help the lonely How to put things in your house. I mean, you can put a robot in somebody's house that moves with, or a moving screen with some sort of character on there that's an avatar and completely deceive them. But but there's, I, I know about a company in Denmark, Mark, uh, I forget what it's called now. Oh, God, I wish I remembered what it was called. A really good company that made a, made a, a robot, which I strongly approve of, for a boy who could not leave his home at all. Mm-hmm. 
Um, he was what what they called a real life bubble boy, not because he would be harmful to other people, but he was highly susceptible to infections that would kill him very quickly. So he couldn't leave his bedroom. And they got him set up with a robot mm-hmm. that went to school, that would sit in the school on his desk and other kids could interact with it. He could interact with the teacher through it and everything else. Yeah. And he appeared on the screen, like a sort of iPad screen with him on the screen talking to people. So he got companionship through being out there through the use of a robot. Mm-hmm. Now, that I really approve of. That's not some sort of artificial fake thing in your home pretending to be to like you. I mean, it's pretense, isn't it? Pretending to love you or like you. Mm-hmm. And then what they did as well then, that same company developed communication methods, very high-speed communication yeah. links with AI to help old people be in touch with their families all the time mm-hmm. through iPads. So a robot with an iPad that could follow them around and they could speak, they could just say, come and it would come. And um, and when it came, it would say, could you call my daughter? And it would call their daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what I mean by the use of AI tools. And, you know, my imagination is limited, but there's a lot of great, smart young people out there who could be thinking of all sorts of tools to put humans in touch with humans. I mean, as time goes on and we might all become isolated when we've got major climate change, and then we're going to have to worry about that kind of thing. And it would be so much better to have have AI helping us communicate and get in touch with each other. That's, I think that humans really need humans and human companionship. Yeah. Otherwise, we'll go completely crazy. Yeah. And yeah. And and in this point, I would like to ask you, do you think that feeling is something we can do it in robotics, something on AI, the feeling besides intelligence? Do you think something is is achievable in the moment you see robots with feeling now? Do you think that? I don't think there's very much likelihood of, of it at the moment. I don't know when that could happen because we don't know what feeling is. Mm-hmm. You might be able to indicate a brain part. You might be able to find all the hormones moving around your body when you get feeling. And mood can be affected by simple things like, you know, the way the molecules are moving between the synapses in your nervous system. You know, we we have things like we have those uh, really good antidepressants now that stop the... um, noradrenaline or whatever whatever it is molecules that pass across the synapse not being taken up again or on the other side and that affects your mood dramatically you're depressed if you don't so we don't fully understand what emotional feeling is mm-hmm. what you could do is get a robot to act out a range of emotions they already do that and also robots are getting much better at classifying emotions Although recently there's yeah. been a massive psychological review of all the psychological literature on understanding and classifying emotions. And what robots are good at doing is is very good at classifying the classic emotions. Mm-hmm. So you smile at it and it says you're happy, but it might be a sarcastic smile. It can't tell yeah. that. You know, it can tell it can tell your looking sad you're looking disgusted you're looking angry though angry and disgusted quite often get mixed up so it can tell a range of emotions but humans aren't even good at or or they don't use the full range of emotions what humans are good at doing is telling what the emotion is in context like i mentioned earlier the robot wouldn't tell if your child was crying because it dropped its lollipop or its mother had just died but a human mm. will understand context yeah. in a way that a robot won't so so it might be able to classify emotions that'll get better and better at that and i'm not too bad at classifying those though you could be lying i mean how often do we feel really sad but you're going to keep looking good for the sake of your kids Mm. you've just heard that a friend has died but your child's there and you've got to smile and laugh with them and you're just pretending you know so it doesn't really tell what your emotion is um and an adult might notice though Mm so they'll get good at those two things but the bit in the middle called feeling i think most people very, very few people working in emotional robotics would tell you that it's ever actually going to feel emotion. And it would need to be something very different. I mean, who knows what's going to happen in the future, whether whether robotics and, and uh, you know, genetic engineering will amalgamate. And at that point, I would no longer call that artificial intelligence because artificial mm-hmm. intelligence by its nature was silicon based. It wasn't grown. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, that I don't know what sort of future we'll have there. So I, I don't really know. I'm talking about, you know, yeah. hundreds of years time. Yeah. 
And I would like to speak about politics, but because I think one of the issues about using AI, like re-identification of people, data, personal data, I don't know what you think about uh, this issue. It's just something like endanger people' privacy when you use kind of this uh, algorithm to re-identify their identities or personal data. I don't know who is just leading as this kind of like uh, the politics and how we use these tools. Uh, can you tell us more about that in your concern in political level? Sure. I could spend a very long time talking with this. <laughs> this is another thing. Well, it mixes with the algorithmic inequality as well, because it's, it's all part of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kinds of people who are being where this technology is being used. But let's start off by let's look at face recognition, for mm-hmm. instance. Now, face recognition was, you know, everybody said, oh, it's solved. Pretty much in the labs, you got 98% face, face recognition from static photographs. And it has, it, I mean, it has developed greatly during my lifetime before they used machine learning when they were just writing programs. It would still work, but, but, um, but now what you find out, that was great in the lab, but when you get out of the lab, it's a whole other matter. It's not very good at all. Mm-hmm. And particularly women and people of, of darker shades of skin. It's terrible. And but even in ordinary people. So so our police force, for instance, and I've been out with our police force on, on test trials with this. So I've seen exactly how it works. And you can watch it going through a crowd really fast. There's little boxes like you see on Facebook when you're tagging. These little boxes just go like a machine gun across crowds looking for uh-huh. particular people. And, uh, and then when it finds somebody, it flashes them up and the police move in to get them. But, you know, the police were using this in, in South Wales and in London. And so Big Brother Watch, one of our NGOs, used the Freedom of Information Act to get on all, data on all these trials. And it turned out that the very best they did was 5% accuracy. 5%. Mm. not 98% accuracy. And at the Notting Hill Carnival, which is a sort of Jamaican Afro-Caribbean carnival, it was 2% accuracy. Oh, that's bad. And now the accuracy of who they picked up and brought in for questioning was was greater. Uh, That came out at about 25 to 30% accuracy after an officer had checked the two images. Uh, mm. But images are not a good thing to work on. Now, the ACLU, the uh, the Civil Liberties, American Civil Liberties Association, did a very clever trick because they couldn't get Congress to listen to them about the police use. And so they ran it through all the photographs. They took the, the recognition one, the Amazon one, that the police are using and ran it through Congress mm-hmm. and found out 28 members of Congress were identified as dangerous criminals. Oh. Now, that has really changed the view of Congress altogether. Mm-hmm. And that's just some of the technologies. We're seeing in the UK technology being used for predictive policing, trying to work out where the crime might happen, what neighbourhoods, trying to work out who might be associated with who in a gang, where the criminals might be. And as many people and NGOs point out, if you look at if the police look closely enough at any neighborhood, it might be a white middle class neighborhood who who they're all taking cocaine. But, you know, that's never found out because that's not where they look. And it causes a sort of vicious circle feedback. It tends tends to be by all the stuff I see throughout the world and all the algorithmic use, it tends to be about the poor, the vulnerable. Mm-hmm you know, the minorities and minority groupings. Now, then you look at China and it's the whole population is in danger here because, you know, I'm complaining to you about face recognition being inaccurate. Well, I have to say that once it's very accurate, it's going to be even worse. Uh Why? I mean, you don't want to be identified all the time. I mean, I'm Mm. a private person. I'm not breaking the law. But when I'm in my home, I yeah. don't want somebody looking in my windows at me all the time. Yeah. None of us do. You don't want cameras on your head. The big excuse is if you've got nothing to hide, why would you worry? Mm-hmm. Well, I have plenty to hide. It's called my privacy. It's my private life <laughs> to hide. And, you know, and when you look at this, this, the whole idea of this kind of surveillance, and, you know, I'm somebody who read all those books like Orwell's 1984. And the way I'm looking at technology at the moment, the power we have of it. Yeah. 
the absolute power, without going through all the details, makes what George Orwell, and George Orwell wouldn't, couldn't even have imagined that kind of power to take away our rights and our privacy. And people don't realise, they say, well, you know, it'll catch terrorists, that's the usual thing, or found lost children, or those kind of reasons always for this technology. But, you know, governments and police will will only... Um, have crimes, mainly only have crimes in which you could actually find people breaking the crimes mm. and arrest them for it. Now in China, I'm hearing that people are being arrested for walking across the road. Yeah. You know, they're being arrested for throwing down litter. Mm-hmm. I mean, you start inventing all these tiny little crimes and this is, once you can monitor all of your population and the way they would vote in an election, and you can do all that monitoring. There's no such a thing as personal liberty now. They have us, and it's just ready for an... I mean, we might all live in democracies now, but they're going to be sitting there ready for an authoritarian regime to take over, and they would be be able to take over in a way that we can't beat, except that humans are really, really resourceful. (laughs) You know, we can beat face recognition Mm -hmm. technology. There's many ways to do it. And then they have... They try using methods now like gate recognition. That's the way you walk. So they can tell from the way you walk in particular who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But even that, you see, you know, there's a book, Bigger Brother. By, it's a really good book uh, by Cory Doctorow. And all the characters in there, because they use gate recognition, the way they walk. And uh, they all just put stones in their shoes mm-hmm. differently every day. So when you're walking with stones in your shoes, you have to walk in a completely different, weird way. <laughs> so, so you know, the, we'll always, hopefully, we'll always find a way around it. But that might be difficult when you're being monitored everywhere you go, yeah. know everywhere you go. And I don't think that's going to happen because I think we're, you know, we have to get the population and the regulators behind this and stop it. Not many people want it. And again, it has to be done internationally. I said that earlier, but mm-hmm. I never said why, because... The problem is, supposing I convinced the UK to go really hard on all the regulation of these technologies, that would be very Mm anti-competitive. So we convinced all of Europe and all of America. Now China and other countries outside of that could be so, you know, develop it to high heaven. So it's got international. It's got to be through something like the UN Human Rights. That's a tricky point. This is a tricky point, I think. Yeah, it is. It really is a hard one. I really appreciate that. But the UN Human Rights Council could look at that and, and develop a new bill of digital human rights. I'm mm-hmm. not the only one suggesting that. I've been suggesting that for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And, but it really does need something like that. We, we, we can't go on like this much longer. And those digital human rights would not be about the technology. And, and people always say, oh, you can't regulate the technology because it keeps changing all the time. Yeah. And I agree with them. But what you can do is you can regulate the technology with respect to how it is used against humans. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That future-proofed. Yeah. If I say that a camera may not observe me without my knowledge, that doesn't matter or, or I can't be observed with any technology without my knowledge. Yeah. That, that means that no technology can be used to observe me without my technology. You know, so it's so it's it's that kind of thing because I mean it's also not just people, but it's it's the big tech companies starting to use face recognition. I mean, and it's illegal in Europe, and yet we found my local shopping mall had been using it for two years. <laughs> okay. Under under the under our GDPR, you may not store data about anyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I could be targeted by salespeople, never mind the terrible things that have <laughs> done to me, you know, anywhere else. You imagine a sales staff talking to you or a robot salesperson talking yeah. to you, even sales staff, and monitoring your heart rate and all those bio signs. They know when you're excited about something. Okay. They- the price up you know they can do all those things so we're at a very dangerous time at the moment i might sound like i'm i'm going crazy here talking about this but it's the kind of thing that we really need especially those of us who who worked in the field really need to be thinking about and i'm very happy to tell you there's so many ngos now springing up tech ngos and so many very responsible people thinking about this and it gives me a great deal of hope really for the future